Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. This show is a best of, featuring the two interviews with Ethan Hughes, combined into a single episode with a running time of over two hours. The first half was originally released September 14th, 2012, and was titled Radical Possibilities. The second came out on November 26th, 2013, and was called Practical Possibilities. Listening to both of these together, in preparation for this new release, I got caught on Ethan's words that his lifestyle is a necessary simplicity, which led to the current title. Of all the material I've recorded and produced in the nearly five years of creating this podcast, Ethan's time with me, totaling about four hours over two different days before being brought down to what you will hear today, stands as the most popular and influential thus far, not only from the feedback that I've received, but also on my own life. If you are new to the podcast, listen and hear about the many possibilities held in Ethan's words, and know why that is the case, why these conversations stand out so much. If you've heard these before, enjoy them in this new way, and be inspired to make even greater change. And here is Ethan Hughes. If you're ready, then, can you give us a little bit of your background and how you got involved in radical simplicity and permaculture? Yeah. I grew up in a fishing town in the 80s and watched the fishing industry crash and went to school for environmental science and conservation ecology. I started working federal government, marine institutes, and I still saw ecosystems crumbling. We were going out in boats that were putting oil and gas into the water, were eating GMO food and not really changing how we lived, even though we were trying to save the ocean. So that led me to Aprovecha Research Center, a permaculture center in Oregon, where I became staff. And I worked and taught at permaculture centers for 10 years, but living under the poverty line to be a war tax resistor, I never could afford a permaculture certification. So thus led to partly creating this project and doing one of the only by donation permaculture designs, which I was one of the first students of the very class I created. So that Basically, the poor and low income by choice had access to this amazing science. So now, through Aprovecchio, I learned this holistic way of living, which seems to do a lot more for healing the earth than just taking kids out on a boat to look at a dolphin. You get them really involved in a hands-on process that they can see the processes of nature and understand their relationship to it? Yeah. You know, and it's interesting. A lot of people think our project is really radical. But really, we're just following the core principles. So favor biological resources. We don't have any chainsaw or tractor. You have to bring the draft horses out, which can reproduce, which a tractor can't, and then create no waste. So we're not going to the grocery store for our food and everything's coming. A few bulk things come in brown bags that we can use in our rocket stoves, which are fuel-efficient cooking. So it's funny that when you actually apply these radical core principles, people think you're nuts, but... Yet, I think a lot of times we take these principles as a hobby. We have our herb spiral and we think our permaculture is done. So we're trying to really invite people to really embody these principles, which when you do it, your life will not look the same. I've been reminded with several of the guests who I've talked to that it's not the techniques that make permaculture permaculture. It's living the ethics and the principles and integrating them into your life as actual design that you're not only designing your landscape, but you're also designing your life around it. Yeah. And 
from the interviews that I've read with you and some of the other material that's available in the work that you're doing, it's presented in a very positive and forward-moving way that even though the path that you're on looks very different from what many people are used to because of your lack of electricity and gasoline and other fossil fuels, but that it's a positive experience. Yeah. We tell people we're not against anything. So for example, people call and they're like, can I park my car there? And we're like, look, if you come by a helicopter, that's your choice. And the fact that you want to come here is is a real honor to host you, that you're curious. And so we acknowledge that road trips are fun. A car in this culture without a good train system allow mobility. And at the same time, we look holistically that a car also has some cost. And I think one thing that helps people is Oxford definition of sacrifice is giving something up of lesser value for something of greater value. So I give up chocolate, which has value, has a huge culinary history. I give it up for something for me, which has greater value, which is bioregional diet. So instead of being against anything, the way we move this project is we're for it. We're for, at night, our hand-dipped beeswax candles. People, not only is it more ecological, because our power station is from 10 miles away, and we can bike there to get it, it also is really moving to be sitting by candlelight at night. Every dinner here is candlelight and you meet the other and you have to move slower. With flame, you have to have more awareness. There's more responsibility than flicking a light switch. So not only are we living more ecologically, but people find themselves more able to be in the present moment. And people come and they just see that we feel really happy and joyful. It's not that we don't weep when Fukushima happens but that they actually see us feel more connected because we're talking to people face-to-face, not through Facebook. We're meeting a, a horse when we work the land, not just turning a key. So I think for mental health, the new book's Finding Nature Deficit Disorder. So many people come here and after three weeks, they forget the radicalness and they just say, I feel, I feel more peaceful. We just had a college professor. She came and said, this is the most peaceful week of my decade. So here they are living ecologically more sound But I think the big thing is with real practice of permaculture, you are a creator again. You're not passively watching. And people then have to go catch the fish and gut the fish and fry it up to eat. And that's really, uh, to me, incredible way to live. Your sanctuary and the permaculture work that you're doing, you get to move people from being consumers into being producers then. Yeah. And nobody ever sees, there's no money exchange. We give the PDC course, we say this is a gift and we've had people in debt come and I've seen over 10 people out of four classes cry. Grown men, just like, this is a gift and it's so hard for me to receive it because I'm in debt. And we're like, take it and go do your community garden in Lawrence, Kansas. That's how you're going to pay us forward. And I think that is also a living testament to Bill Mollison's early third ethic. We have people care here. We have our service groups that go serve those who are homeless and We just went to Detroit by bicycle. And then the second ethic, Earth Care, we're saying, look, we're going to do puppet shows instead of going to the movie. I want to see permaculture applied to to entertainment, to transportation. So it leaves your permaculture site and follows you wherever you go. Then the third ethic, which is abundance share, earlier, it was actually limitations create abundance. And so what we're finding here, by creating limitations, to follow the ethics and the principles, we actually are super abundant. We host 1,500 people here a year, have nine full-time adults, two kids. We send hundreds out to do service. We do not charge anything. 
and it takes $9,000 to run our 110-acre sanctuary educational center. Most single families can't imagine living on 9000 and that's because of limitations. We have almost zero bills. The phone line is one of our only bills a month, and so it's incredible that we might make 3000 for our PDC with 25 people, where normally you could make 40, but that 3000 pays for a third of our operating costs. And so all of a sudden, this third principle has hit me like a ton of bricks that actually by creating limits on our system, we become super abundant because we don't go to the hardware store. So we have to be really creative and humans love the creative process. So there's people come here and they're like, how am I going to do it with throwaway stuff and wood from the land? How am I going to build this straw bale? How am I going to move this with a horse? And so it becomes, a, I would say, ecstatic problem solving where you're really solving this the problem with nature. And as we know, the problem is the solution. But I, I see people so often be like, oh, we got to get up this urbanite. Let's go get the jackhammer. And after they want to have the problem be the solution for about five hours, and then they get frustrated and want to go to the mainstream, easy industrial route. So it, yeah, it's really, I think, incredibly exciting to be really trying to live out those ethics. Can I ask you a logistical question about this? Yeah, yeah how you brought this together is that you say that you're currently living on $9,000 a year to run your 110-acre facility and everything that you're doing by moving to a gift economy. What was required to make that transition to purchase the land and do this development? Did you use your work in government to kind of self-finance the beginning so that you could shift down? That's a great question. This is where I would enter the idea that the universe is a co-creative force, whatever you call it, life, God, it doesn't matter the name, but supernovas are exploding, like kind of cosmic composting. A star basically explodes, planetary nebula and starts over again, just like we have the compost heap. So from that perspective, I think the universe is in cahoots when you move towards life. Serendipities happen. So 10 years ago, I had paid off my college loans and got an inheritance for 150000 And in that moment, I didn't need it. I was working at permaculture centers. I could live on very little. And I saw in nature that a tree doesn't hoard its apples. When it has that abundance, it lets it fly for humans, for birds, for compost. So I took a great leap and just said, I'm giving it all away. I gave a third of it to people, people care. I gave a third of it to the earth to create nature reserves and community gardens, and a third of it I gave to family and friends as a dream fund. So I'd liquidated everything following nature. And then what I've found is in the last 10 years, our projects, the Superheroes and Possibility Alliance and Sanctuary, have moved almost half a million dollars outward to create community gardens, bike co-ops, to protect land, to give a homeless family a house. And so when it was time for us to start, we had no money, my wife and I. We were war tax resistors living under the poverty line. Also, by living under the poverty line, it's a great design to live simple. And so we just put out a call that we found this land. It, it really matches what we were looking for. And just through lots of people, $20, $100, that ab- abundance came back. And we pay that forward by hosting 1,500 people a year and doing the service. So what I think is collectively, we have a lot more. And when we have too much, how do we be like nature and let it slide to those who are in lack and vice versa? This is the last piece of this, which blew my mind. I was in Eugene at an eco-village doing a talk about what we'd found in Europe, the electricity-free service-based centers that blew our minds. We're the only one like it we know of in the United States and hope there's more because we have waiting lists to come here. I just said, hey, silently, everyone write on a piece of paper what your net worth is. 
because everyone in the room was saying, if we had more money, if there's more government funding, there's 50 people in the room. Silently, I took the pieces of paper, $13 million, a bunch of like permaculturalist slash alternatives. $13 million was being held up in that room, which could have bought out a huge chunk of Eugene to create community gardens or nature reserves. So what I'm inviting the listeners to in our own experiment is when we mimic nature and that sharing of energy, there is abundance. And when we hold it, there's death. If the watershed held the water at the top, there's death. And so I think we're spiritually dying by holding back what could uplift another person or another habitat. But it's scary. A lot of people hear what I'm saying. There's a lot of permaculture teachers that were really angry about an article I wrote. Like, this is my livelihood. I'm paying for my kid to go to college. And they attack this idea when actually, I humbly say, if you looked at nature, are you going to attack nature's idea of abundance? Like, I'm not telling you this is true. I'm observing and interacting as Bill Mollison invites us to do in Holgerman. This is what I'm seeing. And the result is we have no debt and we're giving thousands and thousands of dollars away. And we're all living like kings and queens from our perspective. As I said in the Mother Earth article, we are thriving. And I can say that from my own perspective, it is something in the context of modern society. It's difficult to understand. I look at my own lifestyle and I know what my family's income is and isn't and what we do and don't take care of. And to hear your message, it's almost unbelievable in the context of this Western lifestyle. Yeah. I think the important thing, which we're really careful about, when someone steps foot on our tour, we say, look, there are no I shoulds. There's no good and bad. Realize that once someone starts putting pressure, like, yeah, that makes sense in my heart and I should be doing it. I think the most important thing is wherever we're at, we see risk as a unending scale. And the most important thing is to take a risk wherever you're at. So when I have friends who are selling big medical equipment, they're on Wall Street. I have neighbors who are Republicans. I have friends who are anarchists. I see meaningful things from each of them. And I just say, take a risk from wherever you're at. So when my friend calls me and says, I gave up my SUV and got a fuel-efficient Lexus, I cheer. I'm like, yes. One atom moving towards greater ecological and societal justice is wonderful. So I think what we have to realize is not compare. My wife and I have been on this path for 20 years. So we're at this point now. I don't know where we'll be in a few years. And so what I want to invite the listeners and you is what is a step that wouldn't overwhelm you, wouldn't totally disrupt your family, that would move you towards greater harmony with your vision? And that's, I didn't do it all at once. I gave up downhill skiing. And then I started to realize, wow, backcountry skiing is much more exciting. I hike up the mountain and ski down. I gave up scuba diving and started free diving. And then all of a sudden, I had better lung capacity and I was healthier. So I waited till I took one step and integrated it. And only once it was part of my life, then I took the next step. So I want to like celebrate wherever someone is, the risk is equal. So I use my bike now and I have been a, uh, don't use cars. For me to give up my bike would probably be as scary as someone who's used to driving to work, taking the bus four times a day or four times a week. So what I'm trying to model is take a risk from where you're at, and that risk is what's important, not the comparison, if that makes sense. It's a matter of what is any particular individual's next best step for themselves in their situation, not to compare to what you're doing and try to model your lifestyle necessarily. Exactly. When I started doing it, I'd meet people who would meet my wife and I and be like, whoa, and they drop everything. And within a month, they were way beyond what I was doing. 
I would be using a spice. They'd be like, where'd that spice come from? I'm like, well, it came from Indonesia, but this is where I am right now. And they went much further. And those people crashed and burned in about a year. And so I've gone through so many rounds of, you know, when I was 20, all my radical friends and permaculturalists in college. And then when we were 20s and Eugene and all of those folks have burned out. And I was never the most radical in college, but yet I just persistently let go of one more thing. And then, you know, it wasn't until 1999 after many years of experimenting that I was like, wow, I'm going to be car free. I'm only going to get in a car for an emergency or if I can't see someone I love. And in 12 years, I've only had to do that 10 times. So I'm not fanatical, like no more cars. It's like a gentle approach. Like, hey, if I can't see my grandmother, I'm getting in a car. If someone needs help, I'm getting in a car. And in those 12 years, I've only three of those were ambulances riding with friends because I'm an EMT. So it's amazing that you start to allow that shift. And I'm like, wow, I'm not, no, I'm, I'm not biking because of ecological reasons now. I'm 42 and I'm in great shape. And I move slower through my community. I actually like it better than driving. So how do we move towards joy and allow, you know, there's a little bit of time when a new change is really difficult, but when we embody it, I can't imagine not living through the gift economy because I get to give things away every day. And it's so wonderful. Like, here's some peach trees. We have our fruit trees all over Missouri because we have a free nursery. So people come and get raspberries and heirloom organic peaches and we're like, here's how to prune them, take them. And now those peach trees have propagated to five more inner city gardens in, in Kansas City. So we don't get as much money, but we get a lot more of the world we want to see. When it was suggested that I speak to you, I was told that your story was very inspirational and compelling, and now I understand why. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that you took the time to speak with me, that I could hear your story and learn the, these things, and the compassion and change that it can bring in myself and others by knowing that there are people such as yourself who are doing this kind of work. There's a local speaker, Charles Eisenstein, who deals in the idea of sacred economics and gift economies. One time, a presentation that he was giving when we were asking if he needed any kind of an honorarium or a compensation to come in, and he said, no, because when I come do this, I do it because this is what I love and this is what I care about. And that I find that within a gift economy, when I come and do something like this, then a week later I get the phone call to come be a lecturer at a formal conference, and that's the lecture that pays me and helps me keep my lights on and allows me to continue to do the free work and that it all kind of comes together. Yeah, I've read a lot of Eisenstein, and he sent us a few books as a gift, which is wonderful. The one thing, though, it's interesting, we have a great permaculturalist, Adam Campbell, who came to join us from Virginia and is now starting our 10-acre Peace and Permaculture Gift Economy Institute, which is, is the classes start September 24th, a new cutting-edge way to embody your learning. And he's a math major, and he said, it's important to realize the gift economy isn't free. Zero is a mathematical creation. So a lot of people come and say, oh, you give everything for free. And we actually say, no, it's not for free. It's a gift. So you have to receive that gift. People setting up the course, getting all their organic food, growing it, teachers coming as a gift. I even am shifting because sometimes I say free. It's a gift. We give the gift to the person, and when they fully receive it, they're touched and moved to either be like, you know what, I don't have any money, but I'm going to give 100 hours to my community garden. Or they have a little extra, and they're like, here, here's $200 to continue your work. And that's what's tricky is it's a gift 
which then just like the apple tree gives the bird an apple and then the bird poops by the tree and gives fertilizer, like when that loop happens, there's way more. And the challenge with our projects, obviously, we're one of the only few operating this way. It's already abundant. So imagine if in any gift we get, we give away 20% right away to make sure we're giving beyond that. And that blows people away. So you're like, out of the $200 you got for your permaculture, you give 20% away. Imagine if every organization in person, every time they got something, 20% went to another person or organization. You'd just be getting checks up the wazoo every time you looked in your mail. That money would always be in motion or those gifts would always be in motion. Exactly. Just like water and sunlight. And when they're moving, they reach way more. And so, you know, when I inherited the money, I had this vision and people were like, now's your chance to do it. You've got it. And I said, you know what? I don't want people to equate money as the reason we were successful. So I gave it all away. And now we've done it on our terms, which is a group sharing. It's not a handout. It's a sharing. And so now that we are solid, when someone moves next door to us, we can send them trees, bring them the large arch, bring them volunteers. There is a time in the forest when a little tree needs to take a lot more than it gives. It's an understory tree and it, it needs to depend on the mycorrhizal fungi and everything. But then as soon as it can bear fruit, that process happens. So I do realize a natural cycle that there are times when we need more and, need, and then we have more to give. And that's something that takes a lot of faith and trust. And the language that you're using to discuss this, the differences between how we normally would interchange some of these words just as synonyms, the subtle differences are really where the wisdom of this process comes from. Yeah, and, and they've only come from direct experimentation. That, I think that's the genius of permaculture is we're continuing what Bill Mollison and Holgram and everyone started and that's, I think, what we're supposed to do. Like, I think we're not going to be recognizable in 10 years. I hope we're not, because if we just stay where we're at, we're not doing what the entire evolutionary natural cycle is doing. We find the language by action, not by theory. You know, there's a reality, too, that we are not an independent small permaculture center, educational center. We also bring this to the inner cities. So we send people dressed as superheroes, Compassion Man and Love Ninja. They just went to Detroit and Flint. So I think it would be privileged to think all we need to do is be here doing gift economy and healing this patch of earth. But a big part of it is realizing that that also happens in nature with migration and everything, that there's a, there's, there's a huge energy shift with climate patterns and currents. So we try to also mimic that by sending 25 people for a month to Detroit to uplift where they haven't had a chance to have good soil. There's not a good seedbed to start projects there with all the urban decay and violence. So I think the next step, too, is to be involved in everything, which people say is too overwhelming. We're like, no, we can go do social engagement and activism, and we can go do service and social uplift and be good neighbors. And I think that's another piece that I'm excited about is imagine every permaculture center and eco-village gave one month of what their gifts are and gave it away to the world. That would be millions of people. There's a million people certified in permaculture, 100,000 people involved in the eco-village movement. Imagine that, the United States, with just take what you love and give it for a month as a beginning. And that's eight hours a day for five days a week. And we would see tra transform society tomorrow. But I think what we think is we got to do it all. But that's not how nature works. 
each thing gives its piece. So that's another invitation. It's like, can you free up your life to give a month of what you love as a gift to others? That's including all life. So those steps would be revolutionary. And that's what we also do here is we set limits. We say no a lot. We get 10 phone. I'm starting a electricity-free nature school in New Hampshire. And once we're on, you know, helping three projects, we have to say, you know, we're full right now. To help you now would be to give too many apples and the tree would die. So there's also a thing that I think is hard for people to realize is that the frenzy of the activist destroys the root, which makes it fruitful. It's that we have to create limits also in our giving. Because that's what nature does. So a lot of people come here and think it just means you just give until you drop. But we have a feedback where we can actually say, we're not able to right now. To do it would overwhelm our system and we would be out of balance. And when we say that, people often are like, thank you. I haven't been given that permission. I feel like it's a bit of a cliche to reference this fable, but the tortoise and the hare continually comes to mind because if you are slow and steady in your progress, you can reach that end that you're looking for in time that you're not burning out and stopping and having to shift gears over and over again. You choose what your next best step is and you take a step forward. And as you say, 10 years from now, it'll look nothing like it does today, even though tomorrow it might look like you haven't made any progress. It's still that one step. Yeah, exactly. I don't think it is cliche because I think what we're learning is Use small and slow solutions. That's one of the permaculture design principles. I know roughly there's 19 or 21 if you mix up all the lists. And so we move slower. People come here to build with hand tools, and we have to fell a black locust and peel the bark, and they're like, wait, we've built a straw bale in a month workshop. You're moving too slow. And I say, well, how long does it take a redwood to grow? A thousand years. In human society, it's so fast with the internet, with iPhones, in that we've forgotten that also when we look at nature, there are some incredible things in nature like a volcano, which is instant. But that volcano took millions of years of building up gas to that pressure underneath. And so I think we're finding that just doing what we can do in each day with staying vital is enough. That's what we're asked for. And what, again, we see is slow is wonderful. And I don't even think we should call it slow. I basically think it's called slow food and all these slow movements should be called normal food. We should actually be sitting and digesting our food and sitting at the table. And so it's only slow and relative to a society that's moving way too fast. The slow is a reaction to the speed the society has built where really the slow is actually the human scale. Yeah, I call it earth speed. When I ran nature reserves for the federal government, I just lived on an island and managed piping plovers. And after about a month, I reached earth speed. I would wake up and walk slowly and a butterfly would be like, boom. Whereas in modern society, it'd have to be a neon sign. That's why we see more and more boom, because we're so desensitized. You have to have burning man to feel creative. You have to literally burn a gigantic 50-foot sculpture to get any wow. But really, when we slow down from our crazy speed to earth speed, a firefly becomes enough. Firefly season comes here and we set up the chairs and we're like, wow, let's check it out. Or we take inner tubes out on our pond and there are fireflies all around us and the Milky Way above us. We don't need to burn any two by fours for this. And so, you know, it's an interesting idea to regain the sense of actually how all life is moving 
in that we're running ahead. If you don't slow down, nothing meaningful will catch up to you is a proverb I've heard. So, yeah, how do we just stop and let something arise from us? Uh, I love Lao Tzu. He says, can you let the mud settle? Can you actually stop and all your worries and anxious and here's your new design? Just let the mud settle and see what the earth and nature and what does life bring up forth from you? I have several friends who are Buddhist and they reference it's Thich Nhat Hanh. I can never pronounce his name. Thich Nhat Hanh. Yes. And it's hurry up, do nothing. I keep hearing that from time to time and I think about that and it's just that need to just stop and relax and, and take hold of your life and enjoy it. But some of these principles and ethics and aphorisms, one of the notes that I came across was that you're living under five tenants now with your work. And I was wondering if you would share those with me and the listeners. Yeah. Well, we found that we wanted to use and value diversity, one of the principles, and also realizing that we felt like nature had an agreement. It was moving towards the most abundant life, like going towards a coral reef or going towards a climax forest where there's like a setup where there's the most life functioning. And so we have a mission statement in the five tenants simply are guiding towards that goal. And it's important to realize that those could change because we are actually an experiment. We've been funded as an experiment. We're not a permaculture center. We're not a service center. We are an experiment. So we, those could change. And they're not written down anywhere. That's really important just for people to understand. We don't put them on the wall. They live in our heart. And so then you could say them in your own words each time they arise. So the mission statement is really simple. We want it for a second grader to understand. That's living for the upliftment of all life and reaching our highest human potential. So that's our mission statement. All decisions are made by that. And what's exciting is a second grader comes here and they're like, oh, be kind of stuff and be a good person. We're like, you got it. A Christian comes here. Hey, protect creation and be a vessel for the Holy Spirit. I'm like, you got it. A Buddhist comes here. Uplift all sentient beings and find your Buddha nature. I'm like, that's it. It's so simple that anyone can attach their worldview to it. And so that's our driving principle. It's really going for global transformation and self-transformation, which it's a lifetime or multiple lifetime work. And I think the only difference between us and other people are we are saying we're going for it, even though we're imperfect and make mistakes. It's uh, interesting that with that, that's the vision. We have five tenets, which are daily practices to make sure it happens. And that is simplicity, meaning that every day we try to shrink our ecological footprint. Every permaculture center I've ever been ends up going the other way. One more car, one more staff building. So we, per person, shrink our footprint. And that's, a lot of people call it radical simplicity, but I call it necessary simplicity. So basically, with 7 billion people on the earth, the average American to bring that world up to it is three planet Earths. I'm sure we're not going to build another Earth. So there's a big pill for all of us to swallow, which I think is also a pill which grows us wings. And that pill is, we have to reduce. We have to simplify. I like that term, necessary simplicity. And then the second tenant is service, that if we're not serving our neighbors or the people around us, we're a closed-loop system. So we go, our neighbor has cows next door. It's not exactly how we do the cattle, but he takes great care of the animals for the system he's using. He's very integrous, and we'll go help him round up his cows. He's uh, 68, and we love to help our neighbors. I'll help him put in an air conditioner. Service is meeting people where they're at. 
even though I'm car free, I go and help move elderly with the vehicle. I'm not going to have a woman bike across the town. So service is meeting people they are where they're at and serving them. If a neighbor's house burnt down and we rebuilt a very mainstream house with carpets and everything else, I wasn't going to demand he does a straw bale. So we just built it so he could have a home. But then after service is tenant three or practice three, which is social engagement and activism. This is where we go out with an agenda. So we put in a community garden in Kirksville at the fifth grade. We put in a bike co-op. We go down for small farmers' rights at the state house. We've laid in front of a nuclear weapons plant and went to jail and we're singing songs to the police. In our activism, it's really important. We do what's right, but don't leave the other out of the heart. We have no enemy. And that's really important. Then the fourth is inner work, that if we don't actually work on our own greed, our own selfishness, our own attachments, the movement falls on its face. Eating local has nothing to do with food availability. It has to do with controlling your palate so that I can be like, yeah, I'm going to be happy with another leek and turnip and kale salad. And that the inner work allows us to make the choices that allow, align with our heart. We don't care what tradition, you can be of any tradition or non-tradition here, but that you're doing some inner work. Walking in the woods makes you feel more connected. Walk in the woods. Reading the Sermon on the Mount makes it happen. Read the sermon. And then the fifth and most important at times is silliness, joy, celebration, and gratitude is our fifth tenant. We have Olympics in the pond. We do puppet shows. We've done a remake of The Lie of Sound of Music. We had uh, mini golf, croquet, dressed as um, Cro-Magnon people. So we like to have fun. And we have a director of Homeland Spontaneity. So it's a Department of Homeland Spontaneity and a director of fun. So we make sure that we're enjoying this because that's what living is about is is enjoying being here. So people come here and are kind of remarkable. They expect us to be like really crazy, hardcore fanatics. And they come and we're juggling and we're doing synchronized swimming with real judges holding up numbers. So those five together are meant to be a dance. There's some days we let a neighbor come in with their truck and get dirt because they're having to build a house in their rural poor. And there's other days where we remove another system to simplify on site. So those tenants in that mission statement really help us with the direction, but anyone can choose how to do service, and that's the diversity. We go to the elderly home. Some people paint murals. Some people build a garden. You can choose a million choices in service, but we just want to make sure everyone here is doing some form of outward service. And the final thing is all within the context of the gift economy. We're all volunteers. We have a BP oil engineer here full-time now who's kind of like Daniel Boone. He makes his Osage bows and wears buckskin. He's like, this is the life I dreamed of. And um, that's the final tenant. And then it's all uh, the science of permaculture is our leading edge for our relationship with the earth. That's right now in the experiment, our guiding principles. And it's important to realize those can change. We may add one or drop one. They're not intended to be dogmatic. Exactly, and that's for they, they're written down in an interview, but we don't have them anywhere here. And each person is going to say it in a different way, which I think is very important, just like a bird song. They're all marking territory and calling a mate, but they all have a unique expression of it. It's a very intentional way of living. Yeah. I mean, some people won't come here. They won't touch it with a 50-foot pole, even though they'd be welcomed, whoever comes. We've had people recovering from heroin here. We've had people come who are rock stars. We've had uh, nuclear physicists come. We'll welcome everyone. Everyone who comes to our door is sacred as part of this world. So it's funny that some people avoid it because our culture teaches us not to live with intentionality. 
and the very permaculture design principles are about being intentional and being intentional and observing, not letting our mind wander, being intentional and catching and storing energy and letting it flow through the system, not catching it to hoard it, but catch it so that we keep a little bit more water up here. Water equals life. There's going to be more life. And then we let it go down the watershed. Slow flow. And that's funny that slow also equals life, not speed. Because if something comes through quickly, that causes destruction, whether that's the rage of the forest fire, the erosion caused by fast-moving water. Yeah, I never thought about it that way, is that when you speed up these natural cycles, they go from life-giving to destruction. I'm not against death or against, you know, there's times for a tsunami and a volcano, and I know it's devastating the human culture, but that's a cosmic leveling agent, which I don't understand. But a lot of our calamities come from our own human ignorance and lack of humility, I think. And I have a couple technical questions for the work that you're doing there. One is, how do you make decisions with so many people coming in and heading out through your space? That's a great question. So we have a core group. Those are people who have committed their time here as full members. And part of that is really fun. Uh, like Dan, who came in with a lot of money as an engineer. To become a member, you have to give away all of your excess resource and actually tie into nature as your bank account. And we find that, that a lot of people aren't going to choose that. So Dan has had the pleasure of giving away tens of thousands of dollars this year. And now is going to be held up through the natural system, which is much more abundant than the capitalist system. And that's the core member. So we decide by consensus, and we call it deep consensus. It's a little different than normal consensus. We take that from the Quakers. And the idea is, one, you have to allow emotional release in the decision-making. We don't know what we're going to do tomorrow. If there was a big fire in Chicago, we might take 20 families as refugees. That might be scary for someone who's like, I just came to a permaculture center. We're going to host 20 families. So there has to be a way to release fear because emotions block clear decision-making. The second unique part is we always look at the big picture. We put up the Milky Way galaxy at our decision meetings, and whenever we're getting stuck, someone can point to the Milky Way and realize we're just 110 acres in this one Milky Way galaxy out of millions. Let's not take ourselves so seriously. And then the third tenant is third way, a Gandhian idea that even if it seems like conflict and contrary in our decision-making, there's always a third way, just like in nature, that threads the needle to abundance. So one example of this is we have introverts living here and extroverts. You can probably tell I'm an extrovert. So I wanted more people. I'm like, look, we have people signed up to come see this. And when they see it, they're like, it's possible. We can't, we got to just keep letting people come in. The introverts were like, I'm burned out. I want to go for quality, not quantity. So this was a tension because each person has a certain social max. So out of this conflict, which we sat with as a gift, not as a problem, problem is a solution. What came out of it is we've created this 10-acre campus right on our northern border with the Peace and Permaculture Center yet to be named, which is going to be our kind of Yang Institute, which can move way more people through. And this is going to become more the grounded homestead with moving towards, if it was just the full-time members here, we'd be 100, way beyond 100% self-sufficient. But hosting 1,500 people, we're still getting grain from neighbors and things like that. So that's our decision-making. Our visitors can can watch that process. So visitors get to watch it. And then we have apprentices, six or seven apprentices that do a seven-month immersion here. And they are able to sit through every decision. 
and be part of that decision-making. And it's pretty easy because our consensus is based on the upliftment of all life. So if someone came in and said, I want a solar panel, really factual, we can see, well, that creates a bigger footprint, so therefore it's not there. But we had someone come who had a thyroid problem and needed refrigerated medication. We're like, we don't have a solution without electricity for this, so you could have a solar panel until we figure out how to cool your medicine for your thyroid. So the important thing is there's no fanatical energy here. If we can't find a solution with the radical simplicity, we will take whatever solution will work for that person. So there's a wonderful dance in everything that we do. And they seem to be very balanced decisions based on the needs of those who are involved. Exactly. You know, we do have some visitors who come and the great thing here, because we're experiment, they're like, wow, you're rain in catchment. I saw this place that's much better. We're like, great. You want to stay and do it? We slowly can only take on so much in each day. All of our systems are constantly enhancing. We've added 1,200 fruit and nut bushes and trees. Some people come here and they're like, you could have more. And we're like, well, this is the sustainable amount. Because we're an experiment, we can just say, you know what? You're right. Our bike system isn't thriving. Five out of 10 times, the person then gets excited because we invite them to enhance that system. So we get rid of the defensiveness because we're an experiment. And, you know, also, I want listeners to know, last summer, I kicked a chair. I got so angry, I like booted a chair across the back of the property into the outdoor adobe kitchen. And I grew up in a town where we were fist fighting and broke into cop cars. And so I, the great thing here is I have anger issues and I'm healing from it. But the great thing is when I kick the chair, my community responds by being like, how can we support you? Not that you're dangerous. And I think that would be radical for society to realize we're all carrying a heavy load. We all have wounds. Instead of pointing the finger, how do we actually respond by, wow, Ethan does some great stuff. He's tried to be nonviolent for 20 years, and I'm still kicking chairs. <laughs> but that's human. I think what people are inspired by here is they come here and they're like, you people are clueless. We're like, you're right, but we're still going for it. And I think more people go for it after being here because we don't have it figured out. We had a couple come here and saw all these things we were doing wrong. And we're like, you're right. What can we do? And then they're inspired. They're like, we can. Then they have Be the Change Project. So one of our sister projects is this beautiful project, Half Acre in Inner City, Reno. College students came here and they're like, you're not doing enough work with the poor. Like, you're right. We helped them fundraise and in six days raise enough money. They have a shade tree collective in Kansas City in the ghetto. They have a half acre permaculture garden so people can get good food. A nurse came here and was like, I'm tired of the healthcare debate. I just want to walk and heal. A few people at the table were like, I'll walk with you. And she walked out her front door and went 300 miles doing healthcare. So what we start to create here is a culture where we all realize we're messed up and we're all crazy. And despite of it, let's get along and transform ourselves and the planet. And where the possibility aligns simply because it's not about us. Anyone who comes here, we're like, what's your dream? We have resources and we have people to support you. And whatever place they're coming from, you can look at them and say, I understand that you have this past or these problems. What can I do to help you? Yeah, you're still invited at the table. I love the Rumi poem, come, come, whoever you are, even if you've broken your vows a thousand times, this is a caravan of joy, come, come, come again. And I think a lot of people get confused because we, Dancing Rabbit Eco Village and Red Earth Farms, these amazing projects are our neighbors and I'm on the Red Earth board and we've sent the superheroes to help at Dancing Rabbit that has wind and solar and they're like, well, but your project's electricity free, why would you help those other projects? And I'm like, well, they're part of the transition. 
we're only going to catch the few nutballs at the radical edge, like myself. But everyone else needs to do that transition. They need to go from mainstream to an eco-village. So it's supporting the whole succession. In nature, we have to support the whole succession from the empty lot to the dandelions to the shrubs to the final trees. And so maybe we're, if we're blessed, if we're having a good day, we may be the shrub coming in. And Dancing Rabbit may be the dandelion. But they are all very important steps to returning to a sane planet and a sane culture. So I think that's also important is that we support anyone along the way. I'm going to support someone getting rid of their SUV for a Lexus. I'm in. I'm in the game. And it's about that cooperation among individuals and in concert with nature in order to move forward, not to compete and to drag or to destroy in that process. Yeah. I mean, think about it as permaculturalists. If we said, you know, that oak tree is much better than the dandelion because look, it's giving all these, it's a burr oak. So we're eating it. It's feeding the turkeys and the deer. It's, it's gigantic. And look at this little dandelion. In nature, it would seem ridiculous to compare a raspberry to a peach tree. Each has their role. But yet we do that. People come here and want to compare and then they feel bad. It would be really depressing for a dandelion to compare itself to a redwood. But yet it has a sacred role, which the redwood cannot do, or a dynamic accumulator like Comfrey. And so how do we notice that we each have a role, whether we have bands who come here and give music unplugged on their tours, and they're like, we should be doing more. We're like, look, you're allowing us not to have a stereo. This is wonderful. You're making a trip here. And, you know, this one band, the Menders, who tours the country, they've come here three times by van. And without us saying anything, he said, my next tour, I'm walking. And it's from your influence. And what's so amazing for me, when I was in Eugene and I got out of cars and I'm like, here's what cars are doing. A million people are killed in the vehicle accidents, the wars, and no one got out of cars. And now that I'm simply just living it, people come here and we don't even mention cars. We're car free. That people come here for a week and never hear anything about a car. And then they call us and they say, we got rid of our car. We're biking now. And I began to see that by living it and embodying it, St. Francis says, teach, and when necessary, use words. Gandhi, be the change that you want to see. Yeah, and it is slower. And I think that's beautiful. Small is beautiful, C.F. Schumacher says. So a lot of people come here and they're like, you guys are dynamic. You should be going on speaking tours. You should be on that. You should have a huge website. Like People need to know this information. Like, you know what? What we are called to do right now is embody on this 110 acres in Missouri. Sometimes go to Hurricane Katrina to help, or, but mainly stay and be married to this land and be bioregionalist and become indigenous to this area. And if people are moved to come, they can come. But we want to become. We don't want to tell. We don't have press releases or anything. So when you called, it's wonderful. We're like, okay, someone wants to interview us, and this is the moment. It's meant to get out in that way. So I take an hour this morning. And when I get done, I'm going to go cut firewood with the cross-cut saw by hand. It's all part of the system. So you are part of our dynamic system. You're carrying a message out. It's so efficient because I don't have to do it. I don't have to run a website or a radio show. You're gifting that to us. And so we're all part of it. And I hope that you also, and I, I imagine with how many people you talk to, you're constantly asking the question, how do I make this radio, how do I make this more in line And each system is going to move closer to those permaculture principles. So we also have to trust each other. Like, I trust that you're already on that journey. If you want help, you're asked. Otherwise, 
you're sharing great information and you're you're collecting information from hundreds of people that we'll never meet and that's a sacred task too in the ecosystem doing the work that i do reaches people all over the world in a fairly efficient way i love getting to talk to folks who are doing this kind of work and getting to share their voices so that what they're doing may resonate with others yeah and yeah we have a niche we are actually hoping that there's more electric petrol free permaculture centers uh, simply because of not because it's right but because when we have zero waste and we favor biological resources that's what happens when you follow those if something else happens i'm i'm open to hearing it but we can't host everyone who wants to come and that's a, a beautiful sign because 10 years ago when my wife and i were living electricity free in oregon outside of eugene and doing the gift economy most of the most radical people thought we were nuts we wouldn't go to the the vegan chocolatier not because it was bad but we're like you know what we're happy with this this raspberry we're content content with what is and it's really radical even in the progressive culture to say joy comes from inside not from burning man not from a restaurant even though those can be great experiences when we think those experiences are creating our joy it's just consumer culture the green economy is still consuming and how do we come from consumers to actual integral parts of life and abundance and healing and so the great news is 10 years later people are like you you don't ride in cars that's awesome 10 years ago people were like i tried that once where do you have kids i'm like i already have two daughters and a wife still doing it i don't think it's conscious but people are realizing that this model is reaching its end and so it's amazing that tens of thousands of people are wanting to find out about this not out of curiosity because that's how they want to live and having been doing this for over a decade that wasn't the case 10 years ago so there is a there is a shift happening which is really exciting and then what will this look like in another 10 years as you look back and say well i know where we were were 20 years ago and this is where we were 10 years ago and this is where we are now 20 years into this project and how much else has changed yeah if we keep opening and observing and interacting the only difference between us and other projects will be that we have a 5-year head start you know and that that's great because we are a little ahead in the succession of these principles and again imperfectly there's a lot of ways we are making mistakes and that's how we learn but that we'll just stay if we can stay ahead of that edge the great news is we can keep giving the information in the follow-up succession it's really exciting place to be and the most important thing again is out of it everyone here feels more alive and more connected than they have ever in their life and that's also an important part of the experiment when things are in line with nature the tree thrives the bird thrives the kingfisher takes just as much as it needs from the pond to mate to make a nest to sing it doesn't take anything else and that's what we're moving towards it's just what is the perfect amount so we can thrive and when something gets too much it goes into de- decay rats in the lab that eat too much their their health drops and so we are in a culture of excess and you can't thrive under those conditions too much nitrogen will kill the tree too much water will kill the plant everything in balance and the appropriate level of moderation yeah and that applies to each of the individual plants that we grow the animals around us and to each human being Yes, that includes, you know, one day we may choose to give our excess resources to this land or to a tree and the next day it might be the 
woman shelter is full and we host the woman with her two kids until she gets on her feet. And I think that's the genius of the permaculture ethics is a lot of us focus on people care, like a lot of great projects, but they forget earth care and a lot of great projects focus on earth care and they forget people care. And for 7 billion people, we need both if we're going to make it through this time of extinction and climate weather weirding. I mean, we just went through one of the biggest droughts in Missouri history. A lot of the farmers who lost everything are looking at our land and being like, wow, everything's still green there. So by example, we're showing small scale and intensive in weirding weather outperforms large scale. It's interesting that we also get to be a part of the shift in Missouri. And that's important to bring these projects to all the areas of the United States. The more examples that people have to look at, they can see how these systems function and that it really is possible, whether it's on a 2,000 square foot lot in the city or someone's porch at their, in their apartment or someone who's doing large broad scale work. Exactly. And so many people come here from the city and they're like, oh yeah, that's easy for you. And I point to an inspiration of mine in Lawrence, Kansas. He lives on $600 a year. He imports five things. He has wheat plots in everyone's backyard. They harvest it by hand scythe and they mill it in a bike powered thresher and winnower. And it's amazing that his name's Tim. He lives without even candles. I called him. We were writing letters. He's identified 700 plants, 500 insects. He does weather patterns through index cards. He doesn't have a clock. He uses a sundial. When I wrote to him, I was like, yeah, we use beeswax candles. He's like, I don't use any light. I'm a mammal. When it's dark, he sleeps. He doesn't have even candles. And he said, I only use the train for emergencies. He bikes. So he said, we'll probably never meet unless you come to meet me. So when I read this letter, I could have been threatened, but I was like overjoyed. Like, wow, he's taking these permaculture principles and going deeper than we are. And he's in the middle of the city, seven blocks from the train. And he also said, the train comes in at two in the morning. Send anyone anytime. I'll welcome them. What an amazing example. He's living simpler than we are in downtown Lawrence, Kansas. So I always love to one-up people's possibility. I think we're in a culture of impossibility. When we said we were going to do this in Oregon, they're like, it's not possible. What happened if we started to support the impossible? The response would be, I don't know how to do it, but I know it's possible. And there's sometimes people call me, I've had an eco-village, I don't want to say to honor privacy. They call and they're like, we have a million dollars of debt. We heard the gift economy works. How are we going to do it? And I said, I don't know how to do it, but I know it's possible. Like the humility to not limit what nature can do and what miracles can happen and being humble enough to be like, I couldn't figure it out. I think that's the hard part for people. When they can't figure it out, it's such a blow to their ego, they have to put it under the title impossible. And what we're finding here is as we open to it, more and more is possible that we could never even have dreamed of. We just have to step away from our own fear of those boundaries and open ourselves up to what we could do and not what we feel we can't do. Yeah, and it's a devastation. I mean, there are all, all times here when people are like, oh, so if I move there, I'm going to be happy and connected to nature. I'm like, oh, no. Love's threshing floor means we're going to laugh all our laughter and cry all our tears. So there's a days here where we have to look at our own self-created limitations, and that's very devastating. But, you know, a friend who says, there's no such thing as miracles, Ethan. You're in a pipe dream. I'm like, hey, check this out. Right now, you're being heated by light from 93 million miles away. Everything's miraculous. Rain, which life depends on, it's the bedrock of life. 
falls from the sky. Now, if gold falls from the sky, my friends would be whistling Dixie like, it's a miracle. You can't do anything with a chunk of gold. I mean, if, if there wasn't the commerce market. So here's rains falling and people are grumbling getting their umbrellas out. And so I think that's also what happens when you tie yourself into nature. Everything becomes miraculous. We just found chicken in the woods yesterday. We found like 20 pounds of it just growing out of a log. We milked our cow and we had cream of chicken of the woods soup. You'd have paid 30 bucks for it at our organic local restaurant. And we're eating it and all just came from the abundance of the land. I'm like, those just grow out of logs. A five-star medicinal mushroom. And we're drying the rest of them. And I think people have fallen asleep to this factor that you're eating an apple. Light from 93 million miles away made it happen. Through millions and billions of years of evolution to produce this one apple in this moment that you are currently enjoying. Yeah. One of our big quotes is, I tell people when they're leaving here, I'm like, if you take away one thing, take away this. Statistically, the probability of anyone else being here is so small that the mere fact of existing should keep us all in a contented state of dazzlement and surprise. This idea is like, you. when's the last time you said thanks to gravity? Right now, we'd be sucked into space and explode because our body pushes out with two and a half tons of atmospheric pressure. Our body is a superhero. It's pushing out with two and a half tons. When's the last time you said, thanks, body, for pushing out with two and a half tons? When's the last time you thanked your mitochondria? Because we wouldn't be having this interview right now without it. And I think we wake up focusing on the 1% that's not working when 99% of the world is supporting us beyond our wildest dreams. I love Byron Katie said to someone who's depressed, okay, here's your first assignment. Write a list of everything that supports you, every little detail. They wrote for three days and couldn't finish. So I think to be real, we have to focus on the 1%, but only 1% of our energy should focus on the 1%. So I should say, yeah, I broke my toe today and I've got gravity, mitochondria, the sun's still shining, the meteorite that's 30,000 years overdue from hitting us hasn't hit yet from modern astronomy. So we should be... I think if we really saw the world as it is, we'd be doing a dance every 30 seconds. The problem is we'd be so delighted, we'd be just dropping to our knees at every plant and person. I've summed up that kind of idea recently with a single word, perspective. That it's all a matter of our perspective on how we interact with the world and our moment-to-moment -moment living. That if, if your perspective is one of negativity, then that is the place that it's going to be. And if you can find that joy and realize even when everything else around you is melting down and seems like it's going to be the end of days, that, well, you made it through yesterday, you'll make it through tomorrow, you'll make it through today. And you can do so with joy. Yeah, I think you're right. I think permaculture simply is a science that helps change our perspective. And that's why we put the Milky Way at our decision making, trying to keep perspective. You know, every time I kill, uh, take the life of a rooster in our or a male goat that we can't find a home from, I cry. Someone who doesn't want a sheep because it has a broken leg and I bike in and take its life and use its bones and its hide, every time I cry. And it doesn't mean that I'm not, I'm crying because I'm amazed at the beauty. There's a quote that said, I'm weeping because life's so beautiful and so short. I also can, with the perspective of the supernova is useful and I also can realize there's never going to be a chicken like this ever again. And it's given me eggs and given me manure and I'm going to grieve it and eat it and use its energy to try to uplift other things. And that's the best I can do. So it's also about feeling our impacts. So I think that's an important thing is having the courage to cry. Fukushima happened. One of our members cried for three hours straight. And I thought, 
That is one of the only sane responses that I've seen. That compassion for the people who were there and feeling that connection with them? Yeah, just allowing it to hit you. I think we think if we actually let the grief of the world in, we'll be overwhelmed. But what we find is like the Dalai Lama says, is your suffering will lead to compassion. And that when I'm down in St. Louis in the big snowstorm two years ago and saw 100 families living in tents by the Mississippi River, my heart was changed forever. I'm no longer going down there because I, I'm supposed to do it. Like if someone listens to this interview and like, oh, I'm going to go to the soup kitchen for crying out loud. That's not the message. The message is I witnessed those people and talked to them and became friends with them. So I cannot choose anything except to go serve them when I can. And it's uh, let's not have moral actions. Let's have beautiful actions. I think that was Arnie Nass, the founder of Deep Ecology, who was inspired by Gandhi and then has since inspired Joanna Macy and these other deep ecologists who also love permaculture. It's like, yeah, how do we let the world touch us so we'll have beautiful responses? You know, I don't eat bananas unless they're dumpstered because I was in Ecuador and I stood at banana plantations and I met people who are dying from the chemicals and know globally over 10,000 people die from improper use of chemicals at banana centers. If someone eats a banana, I'm going to say, hey, enjoy it. That was a lot of work. Don't feel guilty about it. And I know that my heart was changed by seeing it and letting it touch me. So how do we see the world and let it touch me? Not only the, the Fukushima, I hope on the same day, I'm also celebrating that this Pacific Oceans, all those islands are creating the largest oceanic nature reserves ever seen in history. So how do I let both of it hit me? Because that's balance. Yes, there's a supernova taking out a thousand worlds right now as we speak. And also as we speak, an old supernova has turned into planetary nebula and a thousand new worlds are coming to be. So how do you sit right in between that? Because I think if we go over too over to like magical thinking, like the world's great, no problem. We're missing the devastation that opens our heart. And if we go over too far, like everything's messed up, we need to take out corporate leaders, we're also missing something. We miss it often, but on some days we're right in the middle, and it's really an incredible place to sit. And those are the moments when the the magic happens without having to have magical thinking. Yeah, exactly. You're not faking it. And there are days that I fake it. A lot of friends will say, yeah, you were forcing that one a little bit. I'll be like, you're right. I was so desperate to want something to be different in the future instead of just like taking it as it comes, as nature does. Mount St. Helens, I had the honor of hiking it after the eruption and going up to the rim and being like, wow, the earth, the universe is, oh my goodness, the power. And I also went up there, it was 96. So I started to see this new life come out of that. And chaos, you know, Chinese symbol, chaos and opportunity is the same symbol. And so I also agree with Eisenstein that what seems impossible now, I think what we're doing here is going to become normal. And then what's normal, I hope to push beyond that until we're truly what I think our birthright is, is we're all thriving, knowing that it all comes from inside and we all emulate the joy of a chickadee singing in the morning. And it's authentic. Thank you for your time that you've spent with me today. Could I ask you about three different types of technology that some folks were wondering if you were using and then uh, we'll be at about the end? Okay, great. Are you using composting toilets? Yes. Right now we have... Uh the orchard composting system where we dig a hole, poop in it, cap it with a foot of soil, sawdust, and straw. And then after a year, we either plant a tree on it or dig it back up and use it. 
So that system, uh, we, we prefer when we just plant something on top of it. That orchard toilet moves around some of our damaged land that's high clay. It moves every four months, small hole, and then we cap it. Okay. Do you use cold frames to extend your growing season? We do. We plan to do a greenhouse using all throwaway or recycled. It's a little bigger project to match, uh, you know, kind of throwaway windows. We're not going to just go get the plastic for the polytunnel, even though I appreciate those who are using that as a step. So right now, actually, cold frames are leading extension of uh, how we push our growing season. Okay. And last, are you using solar ovens? We are. That opens up a really good question. Sun Ovens is right in Illinois, and it's made there in Illinois. So in the beginning, we purchased some Sun Ovens, and now we've gotten a really large handmade solar oven that we're retweaking so that it can function well. Sometimes with the project, we'll get off-colored eco paint from nearby, but at the same time, my wife is making homemade milk paint with uh, iron oxide. So we're both uh, we're kind of threading that needle, and at times people come like, why did you buy a solar oven? We're like, well, with everything we're doing, it might have been a year before we built one. So this is in Illinois. It's closer to us, so this is an exception. And each person has to choose. We make our best choice in each moment. These solar ovens, we prefer cooking by the sun or raw because we get most nutrients from eating raw, and then when we need it, solar oven. And the other main thing is we have an adobe oven that's super insulated so we can bake bread or pizza and then later cook in it for another 24 hours. Is your diet vegetarian? You know, following permaculture, we have a really diverse source of food. So one of these is our fish pond and our dairies. We have goats and cows, eggs. But we like to serve. We have a full member who's vegetarian. We have mainly omnivores and we actually had a woman here for two years that was vegan. So we produced a lot of sauerkraut and have tons and tons of crocs and root cellaring. So without refrigeration, our goal is if we can express each diet locally, wonderful. But we also have to say that we find having a really diverse diet as omnivores is the least amount of energy for this area. So we can, for example, get a lot of trophy deer just dropped off here. The guys cut off the antlers and we can 100 quarts of deer. So Omnivore for this bioregion, Zone 5, is the easiest for us, but we definitely want to express any diet so everyone can choose their diet based on their locality. That covers the questions that were sent in to me from the folks who knew that I was going to be talking to you. I look over this, and it's been an amazing conversation. It makes me think of the places in my life where I can change my next best step to get a little bit closer than where I have been. To wrap things up, is there anything else that you'd like to add or sign off with for this interview? Thanks for the question. Yeah, first I want to say thanks. I, I just felt real openness and appreciate your questions and listening, and it was a delight. Thanks for your presence in making that happen. And the second one is, I guess, an invitation to anyone listening right now. It's a really simple homework assignment, only if you're excited to take it on. You make a list of everything you would like to be doing in your life, but you're not. Then make a list of everything you are doing that you like in your life. Then make a list of everything that you're doing that you don't enjoy doing. It's not in line with your ethics. Once you have that list, starting the next day, either pick something you're not doing and you want to be doing and start doing it, or pick something you're doing and don't want to be doing and remove it 
only one. That's the rule of the homework. Pick only one. And then live into that until it feels like it's part of your life. And then go back to the list and incorporate another one. And you'll be on the path to, I think, being really joyful and connected. That is a modified list from when someone asked how to be happy by the Dalai Lama. He said, make a list of what makes you happy and what makes you unhappy. Start adding to the happy and start subtracting from the unhappy. But what I've added so that it's sustainable is only add one or subtract one and wait until you really feel like you're balanced and then do another. And they say it takes 40 days to form a habit. So that's what I did in my experiment, what we're doing here, and we find we're healthier and more alive because of it. So something real out of the talk. If you want to try something, try it. Feel free to call us and share where it's leading you. Thank you for all this time, Ethan. It was a great conversation, and I look forward to getting this out for everyone to listen to. Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. It was great. And uh, just uh, strength and peace and joy for everything that you're doing in our life. And thanks for uh, yeah, sharing these amazing people with the world. And we, uh, yeah, we hope to keep in touch over here. And whenever you're in the Midwest, come by and say hi. And I'm glad to have you again, Ethan. Your interview with me the last time is one of the ones that I keep receiving continual feedback on as one of the most inspirational pieces that they've encountered and a lot of the language that you shared with me and the way that you approach your community is something that I've been using in moving some of the ideas of permaculture and sustainability forward away from just the physical systems to people and community building. But last time we spoke a lot about those like philosophical underpinnings and the way that you practice a gift economy within your home site when you touched on, you know, having inherited some wealth and then giving it all away. And then as you were looking to build the Possibility Alliance, asking for assistance from your community in order to make that a reality. And because of that, some of the questions that I've received are about the more on-the-ground if you will, practical aspects of what you're doing in building a society without, (laughs) in building a community. Uh, I would like a society without electricity and petrol or at least a more functional form of that. But at this time, you're building a community that brings that about. And just people are wondering, how are you doing that? Like when you built your home, did you build that using any of these other tools to get it off the ground? Or were you electricity and petrol free from the beginning? We were from the very beginning. It was an Amish homestead, so when we arrived, there was no power coming into the 80 acres, which has now grown to 110 acres. And we just committed to using our creativity and imagination. There are times when we were building our outdoor kitchen and we needed urbanite, which is recycled concrete, and we had a bunch on the land, the previous owners before the Amish had masses of concrete everywhere. It didn't break with sledgehammers. So the three teachers for the month wanted to get a jackhammer right away. And those are times when we just move slower. Give me 24 hours because there are students and they're waiting to build this kitchen and they couldn't break the concrete on the land with the sledgehammer. And I just made two phone calls and our Amish neighbors had a pile about 50 feet high of old concrete from a bridge site that was demoed. And it was perfect. And it was close enough to go over by horse, pile it up, and bring it for the outdoor kitchen. So, yes, and we move a lot slower. My wife and I, my two kids, live in a 280-square-foot straw bale. And it took a long time to build. The horses bring in the materials. We get secondhand windows and doors. 
we got offcuts, red oak tongue and groove offcuts. The only new material on that building was a metal roof so that we could do rain catchment and be off of any kind of rural water. So there are places where we haven't figured it out yet, but that's okay. When we're looking at shingle oak roofs next, which my wife and I saw in the Pyrenees, they were using oak shingles, which was the tannic acid made it useful enough that you could still catch rain off of it. So even where we make a compromise, we make a commitment that the next building be even more closer to local materials. This is just a technical question for me because I'm looking at re-roofing my house, and I recently interviewed the architect, Bob Tice, and he recommends at this point largely metal roofs because they can later be recycled or slate roofs. And I was just wondering, did you use a corrugated metal roof or a standing seam? It was corrugated. And it goes slower, too, because we're using hand tools, so it's all brace and bed, and which also is wonderful because on our work site, you can hear the birds singing. That's another piece of the way we're building is that you're out in the forest with cross-cut saws and felling a tree. It's very reasonable for our, for our psyche as we build. As you were felling trees, were you then also cutting them to timber with hand saws and axes? Yeah. So while well, we used some round wood for the roof of that small straw bale, so the white oak we use the entire tree to hold up the roof. And in other settings, we'll get a salvage barn wood, so dimensional wood inside of that straw bale is all secondhand material from demoed buildings. What we're moving towards is our head builder, who is a BP oil engineer, who's now a straw bale builder. He has been taking timber framing classes, so our third, we've built two straw bales now, our third one is going to be 100% timber framed, removing all needs for screws and bolts and single-story straw bale. So each time we build, we're learning how to remove more and more material. Our straw bale, our second one was built, first one was earth bags, but to remove any extra material, even the plastic and the earth bag, we built the second one on Osage Orange. It's a post and beam, and Osage is in our forest, and it's one of the hardest woods in North America. It can last 80 to 100 years in the ground. So we built it on Osage beams of different widths. So in 80 years, when they start to rot, the thinnest ones can be dug out and replaced without the need of bulldozers or anything else. So we're actually building long-term. Also, for people in 80 years, they can keep the building going with natural materials. So they can kind of do a find-and-replace repair of the building that the larger dimensional structural pieces that are still there can be kept and to do an incremental improvement. And that's where the creativity and imagination comes in is we have to think in those long-term periods of time. In most cultures, natural building, you replaster every year. You're, you're used to a building being a living thing that you're adding to. In the Western mind, you build it once and that's it. That wasn't the case with the English cobs or other structures, but now the Western mind is you just put it up and it's done. And so we have to rethink without embedded concrete and other things how to keep a living building functioning. Another thing that's interesting the way we build is that idea, the third ethic that kind of got buried by later on in permaculture is limitations create abundance. That Because we only have hand tools, we can only go out into the forest and cut so many trees in a day. 
we can only build so fast that we're building, you know, my wife and two children live in 280 square feet. That limitation is a wonderful thing because it checks us with how much we can impact the natural world around us. I've worked in a sustainable forest with a chainsaw, and you can fell hundreds of trees in a day. With a handsaw, you're limited, and it slows you down again to that creative thinking process. So I think it's really important to realize that by having no petrol electricity, we slow down, which gives us the time to creatively think. And we don't have any building goals, like this is going to be done at this time. We just go out and give full effort. When it's done, it's done. And I find we create time scarcity. Every permaculture site I've ever been to deals with this incredible time scarcity because they're bidding the wrong timeline. And we create time scarcity by creating deadlines. And so here, by not creating deadlines, we're never behind schedule. And there's always this kind of ease. So I think combined with just the practical nuts and bolts people are curious about, there's also an ethos that allows us to build that way without ever feeling that time scarcity that we create in modern culture. I'm just thinking about the way that that changes the way that you live and interact with the world, that it's not a matter of, well, we have to be here at this moment at this time to get this done, then 15 minutes later we have to leave so that we can get here to do this, and just that mad rush that having access to all this energy and high-speed travel and all these other things in the way that it changes the way that we live relative to like that hunter-gatherer idea of the sun comes up, I'm awake, the sun goes down, I go to bed, and how living a life closer to those cycles, the pressure that it removes, the stress that it removes. The several times that I've spoken with you both on the air and in setting up interviews and things, you and everyone who I've spoken to in the community, you just sound relaxed. <laughs> yeah. It's a different flow. I just know we work a lot. In the summertime, we're working like all other mammals in North America. We are busy. Not busy in the sense of crazy. Like today we're canning all the apples we picked and string beans. And we're just like squirrels are putting up nuts. But there's a rhythm like you said, the sunrise, sunset, in the wintertime, the sun goes down at four. We're also like mammals. We're just inside. We don't have electric lights, so we're limited that we can't go crazy all year long. And so these cycles are built so that a mammal rests in the winter, and we rest really well for many months in the winter and recharge. So the more we get connected with the rhythm, the more we feel kind of in our bones feeling of peace and connectedness in our bioregion. One challenge, and it's important to put out these challenges too, is that we're interfacing with the modern world that's working on a time period. So when we're asked to speak at a university, this year we had a gift economy straw bale class with two amazing builders leading it for 10 days. So we had a few things we needed to have prepared for that class. So in those times, we have an equation Whatever you think the most conservative estimate of how long it will do to finish something, so someone gives, okay, we'll definitely be done by this day. We double it and then split it in half and add that half. And so we're always done early. So whenever there is a timeline, because people are coming, we always double, that's our equation, times it by two, half that number and add that other half. And so normally we're like, wow, we're done eight days ahead of time. And again, you create time abundance by just 
it's all arbitrary. You just set up a schedule that's really reasonable. So when we interface with the modern world, we create equations that, again, create that abundance. We're not recreating a society we want to move away from, which is we, we have no time, so then we choose time-saving devices, and those time-saving devices are creating, what is it right now, between 100 and 300 species are extinct a day. That's definitely too many for me. I think about all the distractions that are built into the modern lifestyle between, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at a cell phone that just buzzed a few minutes ago while I'm talking to you, and it's, well, what's that message? And all these other things that I interact with on a, in a day that are just regular to me, but how much time that eats up and how my 16 hours of wakefulness, I lose an hour here because of these distractions and things that I respond to that aren't necessary. And the impact that that has on making me feel like I don't have enough time to do something and then the push to always do something more because, oh man, I've got to get a paper written for Friday and then, oh wait, well, we've got an appointment on Thursday. So because of that, that means that there's going to be two or three hours lost. Then there's, ah, oh, man. Yeah. I think what happens too when we slow down, we're traveling by bicycle. There's no community car on site. If we had a car, I know when I lived, I've been car-free for 12 years, but when I was in a car, if something looked halfway interesting, oh, there's, we're 12 miles from a university town. If it looked halfway interesting, I'd go to it, and I'd be like often disappointed. When you're biking 24 miles round trip, we really select what's most important to us. And so it's another way that we've put these cultural boundaries, as most indigenous cultures have, that actually protect our time for what's most important. Because it's really hard to do when you just have the ability to access it's the age of information and there's so much of it. I may have mentioned it before and we're more interested in the age of transformation but this idea to act on one principle of permaculture, one ethic fully that's better than reading 10,000 books on permaculture or approaches to gardening. So yeah, those limitations both entertainment, social, everything. We have an amazing social media here, the the face-to-face book, where we're just, we demand face-to-face human contact, eyes, face, connection. And so then our life becomes more and more rich because we're not participating in things that are, can create communication, but at a lesser, it's of lesser worth talking to someone on a screen rather than face-to-face. And we need those systems because we're tempted constantly to start moving fast and be able to listen and hear and go to everything. And then we're participating with the violence of society is just trying to do everything. I think about that, and all these distractions and temptations and things are, are pieces that we bring on ourselves. This idea to do more, to learn more, to know more. And that push is just, now you have me contemplative and meditative for a moment as I think about this. I, I mean, I can share another interesting thing, like, when we do our permaculture class, I've sat in classes where you just, it's information full. It says it, information and imagination dense. We're trying to remove the information. We send students out to just observe leaf structures and, you know, it's two hours of them just being in nature observing. And some students are like, hey, I want content. Tell me what to mix in the compost. And we also do that. But this observe and interact is our first principle. And we're so busy getting information 
we missed that. Bill Mollison created it by observing and interacting at a slow pace. We actually walked and watched the land for a year before building anything. Most permaculture operations I know do not move to land and wait a year because it feels like we've got to get it in. We've got to get it going. Yeah, again, it's slowing down because if nature is our teacher, we really need to slow down to listen to it, its rhythms and everything else. And the onslaught of information to me is totally counter to the wisdom, the deep wisdom that I get from just being in the cycles of the sun, being and knowing my when I go to the bathroom, my waste is being composted. So I really think the permaculture movement is so exciting, all this new information and workshops and new ways to do prairie, and uh, it's wonderful. And also, I would use the word psychotic. It takes us away from those rhythms, which the essence of permaculture is about. That sense of place, both physically and temporally, as we move through the seasons, if we live in a temperate climate or if we're, how did a friend of mine describe Texas as having uh, two summers? And so quickly, our conversation moves from those practical on the ground pieces, those, those techniques back to the, the principles and strategies that we use for building the space around us. Yeah, I'm excited too. If you want to, I know some listeners had specific nuts and bolts questions to just go through some of those and I can just give concrete answers and then maybe see where it moves from there. One of the pieces that you said earlier was about how with like a straw bow house that you're plastering every year and adding to it. What kind of plasters did you use in building your straw bales there? Interior plaster of our small straw bale is a mix of sand, clay, and cattail fluff. The finished plaster with, a, with cattail fluff, that's the seed head, adds a, a strength, but you can get a really smooth, solid finish. We're finding the more natural plasters here with the clay that we dig up from the land. At first, we did experimental plasters in the outdoor kitchen with lime and a few other industrial inputs that usually make it harder, but it tends, our plasters work a lot better without that, with just the clay from the land, sand, and um, it would be, the first layer would be fine straw, and then the final would be with the cattail fluff. And some of our plasters, like the outdoor kitchen, will last years and years without having to be replastered. Just know there are some adobe and other buildings studying global alternative natural building where people will replaster yearly if there's places with like monsoon rains and things. But here we can go for years without having to replaster with a natural mix with no added lime, just local sand, clay, and chopped fine straw and then cattail fluff. And you're just finding that it holds up fairly well? Yeah, better. We really do a lot of experimenting. So each wall was a different mix. We put in horse manure in one, and there are small walls in the outdoor kitchen with adobe brick that we made here. So we just tested them, and some of them, after two years, sloughed off, and we had great information. So if you're using vernacular mixes, better to test an outdoor kitchen on a wall that's eight feet by four feet and get the results before you go building a house and plastering the entire house with the mix. Uh, what we're just learning now, uh, one of our builders who worked a lot in Tasmania is this fermented plaster mix. It ferments for not just overnight, but for 10 days, and then the microorganisms actually create an incredibly strong plaster. So we're just getting into these fermented plaster mixes, which have been developed in France. 
in uh, Tasmania. So that's really exciting. But one exciting thing is because we're going for it imperfectly, we attract a lot of people who are curious, who are, quote, experts in their field. And so um, they come in and add all this wonderful wisdom to our experimentation. And then you get to mix all that information with the experiments that you're learning and add to that in a body-knowledgeable way because you're there doing the work, not just reading and thinking about it, but actually on the ground, participating in And I have to say, people who come for the apprenticeship, it's an embodiment. Even all the practical things of how we go about things also generate a new way of being. So one of our apprentices already left by bicycle after the apprenticeship was done. Many go and say, I just realized I don't need electricity before I came. Can music, this huge list, and at the end of seven months, they're like, wow, life is so much richer without it. You can't just write that down and believe it. And that's one place where I have a lot of uh, empathy for folks who don't have access to a full embodied experience of returning to a natural cycle. It takes months for people to go through this kind of detox and then find a new way that's actually tested, experientially more meaningful. It's not an idea. They leave and they just know, like, I'm going to be biking and not using electricity. And it's just an embodied thing. There's no moral statement about it. It's just we enjoy it more. But then you have an incredible revolution. And then there's nuts and bolts around it where we have to find compromises. With We have 1,500 visitors. If we go too far in certain directions, visitors won't even be able to land here and be comfortable. So I know you had mentioned earlier about what are you using your composting toilet. We have options. We have a basket full of mullen leaves and lamb's quarters, not lamb's quarters, sorry, lamb's ear, that people can use as natural toilet paper. And that's in a basket. And we also have an option of bulk purchased 100% post-consumer toilet paper that we buy bulk so it's not in plastic wrapping. We get a big box. So we have both. And a lot of our systems here also embrace that we have college groups and fifth graders. And so that way, people have a choice. Those who want to get a little more experimental can reach for the Mullen. And we have a little write-up about it. And other people can go for the 100% post-consumer waste toilet paper. That would make a huge impact. If everyone in the United States uses 100% post-consumer waste toilet paper without plastic wrapping, that would be a wonderful leap. And then the next leap would be have a big area of comfrey and Mullen. And then you've really dropped it to very local. And it probably helps with the composting. In buying the 100% post-consumer bulk toilet paper, how do you... I feel so strange asking this question because I remember a time when there was no internet to look these things up. Yeah. Like, you know, I used a phone and a telephone book to find information. I would call around and now I almost feel mystified by the idea of being able to find a product in bulk that you would need without access to these information sources. So how do you access where to get some of these supplies? We're near a university town, which was part of our design to be near a university town, so liberal arts college, university, and then a founding school of osteopathic medicine. By having that, we're rural, but being next to that, there's a buying club where families buy bulk in function as a co-op. So where we do need to bring some of those things in, we go through the buying club, which is both economically cheaper than a natural food store. And also you can get numbers high enough where you can avoid packaging. So that's wonderful. That's for us transition. 
as we're just harvesting our own wheat, all by horse and by side, and we're making all our bread from the land. The first time this year, we now have our dairy cow, so the butter and the milk. Each system we bring in, we then cut off one of these systems, which are, is still moving in the right direction, bulk organic, as bioregional as possible. So that's the pace that we have here, too, is, okay, we're not going to bring in a new animal. We have, we have bees, chickens, ducks, goats, cows, draft horses. And we started with just one. We started with chickens. And once we had that system well, black walnuts falling from the trees that we feed them in the wintertime, free-ranging so they get insects. Once we have a good basic permaculture system starting up, then we get the next animal. Then we got the goats, and we had the goats functioning and found out, oh, they love cattails and feeding them hundreds and hundreds of cattails, and we eat the cattail hearts. And when we strip them, that goes to the goats. And then finding all these systems localized to feed them, honey locust pods fall, and we can collect 20 bushels in the morning, um, and the goats love them over winter. So we bring an animal in slowly. People come here and they're like, where are the pigs? Where are the all these other things are like, you know what? We're now getting our cattle system worked out. And that's the same with our food production. We have four organic gardens, no-till, that are um, on contour raised bed. And we're just planning to put in a fifth. We've added a, about a garden every other year. And then we now have a large field where we're producing grain, field crops, two areas like that. And that it's a it's a slow movement. We don't come in and say we have to be 100% self-sufficient right now because then we're back into psychotic behavior. We can't transition out of the industrial world overnight. So each of these systems, we build and get to know it. And once it feels like embodied and we got it, then we bring in the next system. So for some people coming here on our seventh year, they feel like it's too slow. And then I say, well, a redwood takes 2,000 years to grow. Is that too slow? You're building an incremental design that functions within your time horizon, which happens to be longer than what others might necessarily consider. Yeah. And even when we do a building, sourcing throwaway windows or secondhand doors as locally as possible takes a lot longer. And it's also very rewarding. I think one thing that's interesting about the internet is it removes all relationships. You just go and get your information where we don't have it here. I call a neighbor and say, hey, do you know where there's some local alfalfa for our goats within 10 miles? Or I call Don Jack, who's 87 and has barns full of salvage windows. And I say, hey, yeah, we're looking for this type of window. And the very act of looking bioregionally, I'm building relationships, human relationships with all of our neighbors. And relationship-rich life with both nature and humans is incredible. And because we're going by the phone or biking down the road to our Amish neighbors, when we're sourcing things, we're building relationships. And I think that's one thing people haven't seen that the Internet has taken away. You're not interacting with anyone directly often. You're doing a, a search. So on people's deathbeds, their regrets is no relationships, not following their dreams, not living out their heart. So it's interesting that we're going against our very human nature to be in relationship and be in community, favoring something that maybe is quicker. And I know in my marriage, I would rather have the depth of 12 years and a slow walk in the woods. You can't replace that with anything. 
Speed is overrated. The more and more that I walk down my path, the more and more that I agree with that sentiment. But I think when our lives are overwhelmed, you know, Sarah and I, it's been a 20-year process of me removing and simplifying, you know, the nuts and bolts. It's like, you know what? I downhill ski. I'm, I just studied that it messes up black bear migration in Vermont. I'm going to walk up the mountains for now on. That was 20 years ago, and it led to each time I could embody and then make it part of my human culture and then take on something new. But when we're in time scarcity, when I go back to visit my friends in Boston, they're so overwhelmed that they can't even imagine removing any of these things because their life, you know, one quote from a friend was, I'll be torn apart. Like, I won't even be able to function on my basic responsibilities. And then we get into the whole culture of debt. You buy a house, you owe the bank, there's interest. Everything's built to speed you up, and then you have to be a consumer. And it starts this very predictable feedback loop, which I don't see people and judge them. I see them and I'm like, wow, this is really sad. I give all my money away and I have more capital than all my friends on the East Coast. Who they're like, wow, how do you, how do you manage a family? You have, you know, at any time the possibility line says $1,000 is a lot in our account, which would equal two months of paying for 15 adults, two children, and hundreds of visitors. But most of my friends are actually in, if I do the math, they're in like negative $200,000. So it's an incredible paradox by living in the gift economy and giving everything away. I have more physical assets in abundance than people who are working and making 100000 a year. It's mind-blowing. And my brother pointed out, because he doesn't have any debt and lives in an apartment, he's 45 and has a roommate, and his friends are like, why don't you get a house and invest? And they often harass my brother, saying, well, your brother's irresponsible, and he'll turn and say, my brother has no debt. How about you? And so it's really, I mean, it's capitalism. You got, once you go down this rabbit hole, it's fine to think about moving slower and using a handsaw instead of a chainsaw. But then we also have to go to the macro and start questioning everything. And that's where it gets exciting and scary. That the very permaculture ethics and values and principles, they're brilliant. They force us to question everything. Zero waste, very favorite biological resources, true earth and people care. And so the hard thing is if we really become bioregionalists and permaculturists, our lives will be drastically different. And I think that's the jump we need to give resources for our people. We need to give them the resources to make that jump. One important thing, though, that I think you pointed out in weaving together that narrative, though, is that it's not about doing it all at once. It's not tomorrow I'm going to decide that I'm going to call the power company and have them turn off the electricity and start using my wood stove. And you spent 20 years getting there your interns come and they spend seven months embodying this lifestyle in order to kind of realize the possibility of biking and living without electricity. And then when they leave, they're in a place where they can make that decision. And I think, you know, Sarah and I didn't have a system like this set up. So it took a little longer. I was a lone wolf for a while, swimming upstream and mainly getting a, a lot of attack energy, even though I was just doing it for myself. So it's great to have these pockets of support. I think embodiment happens faster when we get the support and resources we need. And I also realize sometimes you come up against a wall, and I believe there are tens of thousands of people at this wall right now in North America based on our 
only 7,000 visitors have come through in six years, but enough conversations to realize I think there are people ready to leap. So there's a balance between taking a risk, having it be scary, and pushing forward and not going into overwhelm so all your systems shut down. But I do feel like there could be a little more risk-taking. I say that with a lot of love and compassion, but there's a way in which we can keep waiting for the next year. I love what Gandhi said is every day take one, even a tiny act to move towards the world you want to see. And that might be, I'm not going to use a pen anymore. I'm going to use pencil. Some reduction in impact. And I think that as long as we're moving forward in whatever small act, I really applaud it. And I also see a lot of people thinking their way out of that risk. Could you elaborate on that, that idea of thinking their way out of that risk? Yeah, it's only from my own direct experience and also watching people around me. When I was planning to give away my money and get out of cars and really simplify, my story was that my life was going to fall apart. Yes, it was important for the earth, but literally my relationships would fall apart. I would be a dependent. I would feel often fearful. I had all these stories of what would happen, and all of them were completely wrong. I started to bike all the time. I got in better shape. I'm 42 now, and I'm in incredible shape. I don't need a gym membership because I'm always moving by bicycle. I slow down, and I don't know if I mentioned this last interview, but when I visit people, I have to bike up the hill in Berkeley, and I spend the night with my friend. And when I had a car, I would just drive by for lunch for two hours. So my relationships are all enhanced. My physical health is all enhanced. Having given away everything multiple times, I have no fear now. How great to have no like covetedness on an object. Someone's like, can I take your bike? I'm like, great. I had a bike stolen because I wasn't using a lock. The next day, three bikes arrived, and I gave two away. Actually, the results were so different than my mental story. And it's not that it wasn't heartbreaking at times or difficult, but life is, has challenges no matter what you're doing. People get sick. We die things break down. That happens no matter what. But there's a deeper peace and meaning when my bike breaks down or whatever else might happen. But what I find is everyone who takes that leap, the story, the mental story they told was often totally wrong. And I found that I find that in myself. I just committed to look at no more screens. Now, I, I only spend about four hours on a screen a year simply because I visit friends and they're like, oh, look at this YouTube or look at this thing I made or I made a commitment when I stopped watching movies. My brother studied movies to watch one movie a year. But I realized even four hours, I want to be interacting with real life, people and nature. That's it. And so these commitments, at part, they're scary. I'm like, what is my brother going to think? But then I realized that my brother's love for each other does not depend on a movie. We can be creative and find something to do. One thing we came up with is I mountain bike and I tie a rope on the post and I tow him on his rollerblades, which he enjoys much more than going to a movie with me. But we're forced to be really creative and really imaginative when we have to replace these things. When we get creative, we become alive. For my anniversary the other day, nuts and bolts thing, we don't go to restaurants. My wife and I, we, we chose to push that money in different places. Before my anniversary, I had a friend dress up as a waiter. I had a friend play accordion, and we set up 
the dinner table on the dock out over our pond covering cattails and ducks and and they set it up like a restaurant and Sarah didn't know and we walked down the path and I said, let's just go for a walk before dinner. We show up and there's my friend and we made a menu. It was a dockside cafe and there's Sarah and I stepping out. We had two people take our kids. We're sitting out on this dock with tables, cloth and flowers from the garden and someone's playing accordion and then they served us dinner. And Sarah's like, this was a hundred times better than any restaurant on the planet. And she was surprised. We got the same delight as if you'd take your partner out to a restaurant. It took more creativity, depending on more human relationships. But in the end, the result was way greater than what an industrial society could offer. And that's when I think we're doing true cultural and natural design permaculture. We did it on our terms and made the experience even better than a restaurant. And everyone you included in that process added more to those human relationships because of the people that you included who were close to your life, rather than some anonymous musician or anonymous waiter that these were your friends who were part of this with you. Yeah, and that uplifts my wife as a surprise. It's like, these people care about me. What you're doing, Ethan, is simply amazing to me. I mean, for me, from the there's an idea that Mark Lakeman shared with me when I was speaking with him, and it was this thought of, Whose story do you inhabit? Am I, am I really living my own life within the story that I want to create, or am I living within someone else's? Mm-hmm. Hearing the successes that you've had in the places that you've been able to go, though I might sit here sometimes when you're talking through this, I, I was told once that human beings are really good at piling on. And some of that, those negative thoughts about, oh, well, I could be doing more, and then I think about what you said before, the first time we spoke about meeting someone where they're at and realizing, well, that this is where I'm at and taking a few minutes to realize that, wait, let's think about where I myself was a year ago or two years ago or even three years ago and all the changes that I've made in that time to get closer to living the life that I want to. I might not be where I want to be yet, but I am still on that journey. I'm taking steps forward. Yeah, you're exactly right. Comparison will kill us. People come here... It's very imperfect in the extent that people can still point out, oh, you're using a bike lighter. And we know that, and we're comfortable with that. But at least they say, I can see where I'm heading now, or I can see the map. I hope there's a million experiments, and they all look different than the possibility lines. Nature is diversity. That's another teaching. So we help to support projects that are going to be distinctly different. And I do think we need celebration that... Wherever you're at, you make that movement to a simple movement. A a professor from Grinnell came down with their students for a weekend, and he got very overwhelmed being here. Then he went home, and they have a movie on Sunday night. They left Sunday morning. And he just decided, he's like, hey, can I tell you a story about where I was just at? His son cuddled up next to him, and he told a story for an hour about his experience here. And it was so connecting. And then he called me and said, it was so amazing. On Mondays, I, I told a story because I'm so afraid that video games and movies will beat me. So I don't even want to take them on. That my son will be like, shut up, Dad. I want to go watch the movie or play the video game. And the son stood there totally engaged. And he called and said, I did it last night. And I was like, yes, that is what it's about. Just like a simple step in the moment. And to celebrate that fully. And if we're both doing that for each other in his community, 
celebrating the act, not an ego kind of you're awesome, but just celebrating like you move closer to the world you want to see. That requires celebrating. What you said about the story is so true. The hope you said, those who tell the story rule the world. It's all stories. And everywhere we turn, we see a story that for revolution, you need the internet. You need to consume to be happy. That's the story being told even in alternative. You need fair trade chocolate or you'll be miserable. We need new stories to define the human culture and the earth. And so storytelling is is so important. Celebration and storytelling in, in this current time, I think, are essential. I want to thank you, too. I have the experience that you're Dominic Barter just came here to do a workshop on restorative circles, which we're now studying an alternative to the punitive justice system. We've committed to not bringing in the police. And um, we had someone show up this year that was escorted out of the county by police, another county, and showed up in our woods. And we put it to the test. He was here for a week. We got him back on his feet. And now he's doing activism with the Keystone Pipeline. What Dominic Barter said is to be changed, you have to feel the other person. and I think that's such a beautiful thing is to let us feel, if we feel the earth and what's happening and we feel other people, the change will be effortless. It's just reading what led to Martin Luther King standing up against the war and really changing from civil rights to global justice as he read an article about children dying in Vietnam from Rampart Magazine. He was in his office and he saw pictures of the dead children in Vietnam and he let himself feel it. He stood up in the moment. He said, I'm done. I'm taking on the war machine. And it's because he felt the world. And I think also we're, we're conditioned to not feel. The news goes so fast. And I think slowing down to feel. And then once we feel, action becomes effortless. It's like non-action. I guess I'm getting to the point that I really feel like when we're in conversation, you feel and are impacted by our experiment. I think if we all did that more, the actions would arise by themselves. I find it funny that you say that because as I was sitting here kind of speechless, taking all of this in, before you started down this next thread was that you and I have spoken between this conversation and the last interview and some of the others. We've spent maybe three to four hours in conversation. I feel like I know you and what you're doing and who you are as a person better than some people who I've known for a decade or more. Mm -hmm. Straddling this edge between the life that I've lived in the modern world and always being pushed to go to college, get a job, buy a house, have a family, like all these normal milestones that were presented as the way to live a normal life. And this other side of going down the path to live the life that I've always wanted to live and feeling kind of conflicted between the two as I make that transition just because of the fear of the success of living my own life in a certain way, thinking about all the people who I've known for so long who I've never really been able to connect with because of the stories that they've inhabited and the way that they've lived someone else's life rather than their own. Mm -hmm. I feel happy for the people who live the lives that they want to, but I feel a little sad then for the people who are almost trapped by those stories. I find when I'm with my family and old friends... I really have to function by just listening. Just me showing up starts triggering people. I come to the family picnic and there's paper plates and someone comes over and says, oh, we're sorry, but they're left over in the basement. And then 
one of the aunts is like, I don't want you to come see my redo of my house. I'll be embarrassed. And it starts going. Paper plates go in the trash. Oh, I'm so sorry about this. Everyone's apologizing to me. And I'm just enjoying being with family. And, of course, I'm choosing to bring my own plate and cup, and I don't say anything. But really, all I can do is just listen to their pain and their confusion, and then I stay connected with them. And I think that's such a gift we can all give as we're pushing forward towards ecological social justice or taking risks. It's hard sometimes to not have a shared reality, but I find most of my time I just need to listen to what comes up in people and really honor it and trust that for some people they're never going to be able to hear my full message. But the first thing to stay connected is to allow my grandmother to have a meltdown because I'm not driving, that she's never going to see me again and that I'm ruining the family and to really just hear and say, oh, I hear this and did you hear I'm com committing to being with you more this year than last year? And I think that's important work too is to those who are stuck need a lot of love and compassion. I don't think information is useful or challenging is useful. People are on a deep level, I think, get it in their heart. They just can't imagine getting out of $300,000 of debt or whatever they've gone down. And, um, yeah, so it's interesting. I think we need to be very ferocious and risk-taking in our own lives and balanced so we don't go into overwhelm. And we need to be incredibly compassionate and kind and gentle with other people's lives. And, you know, modern activism is like, well, ram this down your throat and then we'll have the world we want. And there's a there's a small category where people really want to be challenged. And so when people come here, we give the tour, I show them what's happening. And if they ask me, like, what do you see in my life? How should I change? I stop and say, well, what do you want to change? And if someone really wants to be challenged, like, do you really want to be challenged on this idea? If they say yes, I check again. If they say yes, then I'll share my limited perspective. But I think um, I'd love to see a greater gentleness. And I think people actually make more radical changes in a pillow of kindness than they do in a pillow of fire or judgment. I only have a glimpse of some of the places that you've gone to in order to get where you are. But I'm very thankful that you've arrived at this moment and have shared it with me. And just thank you for that. I mean, one thing that's important, I want to share just a few shadows to balance this interview, if that's okay right now. Sure. One is, I've gone through incredible heartbreak. And I do believe, Rumi, that the door of devastation is the door of love. Is so many pieces of myself have had to die. And the path of becoming who you want to come, birth is, birth is a messy thing. There's a lot of pushing and blood and the heartbreak is part of our breaking open our heart for the world, but there is a lot of grief and sorrow as much as joy and beauty that informs this experiment. So that's the first thing, that it's not that you're just going to choose to do something and then Muppets come out of the trees and start singing, and you take that radical leap, and then your life changes and relationships changes, and it's very, can be really heartbreaking. The woman who biked out of here, she's 23. She's like, I'm biking home and I'm doing electricity free. Her mom drove across the country from Virginia to intercept her on the way to Chicago. And her mom had her sister say, you know, don't let your sister into the house if she bikes there. These are the kind of heartbreaks like, oh my gosh, I'm finally doing what my heart wants. 
now my family says I'm ruining the family. And these are the kind of struggles where we need a lot of resources and compassion. It led to an incredible breakthrough between the mom and the daughter. And when we live our truth, it usually ends up in a breakthrough after the blood and the pain, like a birth. On the other side is this baby, and you're like, oh, I'd go through this a thousand times. But when you don't see the baby, it seems like your family's falling apart. It's really hard to stay the course and keep coming back. And also one of the shadows here is there are times when we, we don't figure out a bioregional solution. We have a 100-year-old farmhouse. It was concrete, cinder block. The clay was pushing it in. We have some of the greatest horizontal clay heave next to New York State. So the house is falling in. So we're like, okay, how do we do this? Everyone said you need a bulldozer, you need all this stuff. But we finally settled with getting recycled I-beams, and we needed a acetylene torch, which we borrowed from a friend, to cut the recycled I-beams to prop up the basement. And we had to get some recycled rebar and some new concrete. It was a lot better than a bulldozer and huge anchors, and it works. And we worked with a friend who had done basements. But there are times when we don't find a local solution, like either the house falls down or we use recycled I-beams and we get a settling torch. I believe there are 15 times when we've had to bring in some really clear industrial input on the land because we couldn't find another solution. And that's okay. We're like, okay. We're not going to build a house with, in clay with a concrete floor so we can build differently next time. But there's a way in which I think that we've really, collectively as a community, we don't beat ourselves up. And I think if we give it time to find a third solution, if we don't, we keep telling people when they come, we're like, look, here are all the places we haven't figured it out. Help us. I think that's another important piece with the fact that, you know, we have a phone line, a landline. Most people say it's very primitive. It's our only technology, like any kind of energy coming in on the land. And people are like, what about the phone? We're like, yeah, power lines, we don't know how to figure it out, but we want fifth grade groups and colleges to come. We haven't figured this one out. They think it's really hard to even talk on landline. Some groups don't work with us because we don't have email, but, you know, we don't have a solution. And to just sit with that and be like, but we're going to keep looking at it. And what I think is each one of our lives needs literally hundreds of people to help us problem solve. Like what you're doing right now, your journey in bringing this information to the world and looking for changes in your family, you need hundreds of relationships to help you problem solve each little thing. Because if you try to figure out yourself, which I did in the past, I become really overwhelmed, isolated. Then the judgment starts coming up. So I think it's a time of building relationships and circles and just to realize that we make a lot of compromises here. And we just don't jump to the industrial right away. You know, we had a we didn't have a wheelbarrow when we showed up. We borrowed our neighbor's real wheelbarrow for nine months, and we looked for a second-hand wheelbarrow all over the county. We went to auctions and couldn't find one. So after nine months, we were like, we can't borrow our neighbor's wheelbarrow. We don't have a wheelbarrow. And we didn't have the infrastructure to build a wooden wheelbarrow yet or the time. So we went and purchased a new wheelbarrow, and we found one that was built at least in Mexico and not in China that still required what I would call inappropriate labor in a, some form of sweatshop on the Mexican border. But we tried. Nine months was a good go. And we got a wheelbarrow and returned our neighbor's wheelbarrow oiled up and repainted. And So there are lots of times when we have to make those decisions and we try to make it the best decision we can. As has seemed to be the case the last several times that I've spoken with 
recent guests who have mature perspectives on the world that they want to see and the life that they want to live. I don't have anything else to add at the moment. (laughs) Can I ask a few quick questions and we'll bring this to a close? Yeah. You touched on your gardens being no-till and you're adding them every several years or adding one like every other year. About how many square feet of garden space do you add each time and how much do you have at the moment? Probably in our vegetable gardens all combined, maybe three-quarters of an acre, and then maybe with the field crops and everything else, maybe that would be an additional half acre. And then a lot of perennial food sources. We've added over 1,200 perennial food sources, fruit, nuts, bushes. So we're really heavy on perennials. So we are growing everything from medlars to Manchurian apricots to cold-hardy figs. I mean, cold-hardy kiwis. In addition to the garden and crop space, we have edibles planted everywhere. I mean, we've added just 50 mulberry trees, and we have 11 mature mulberry trees. We've added 25 service berry plants. A lot of them local wild food that we enhance. We find blackberries growing in one area, and then we move tons of the same species of wild blackberry there. On top of that, we eat hundreds of pounds of wild edibles. So we just got a chicken in the woods mushroom, 20 pounds of mushrooms. We eat hundreds and hundreds of cattail hearts and feed the rest to our goats. We get maybe on a good year 30 to 40 gallons of autumn olives that are wild, uh, non-native wild. So it's important to realize we're just not functioning on the garden. We have dairy from the goats, from the cows. We have uh, aquaculture. We eat 100 fish from our pond, and we've just restocked three new ponds as we added 30 acres. So it's a very diverse food system. 90 pounds of honey on a good year coming in from the bees. Cicada, the year of the cicada, we fried up and ate many cicadas. Um, We'll find a fresh roadkill, coyote or deer, and eat it. We get deer. We canned seven deer one year from like trophy deers where they take the antlers and don't want to eat it because it's a buck. So we have multiple systems happening. We glean fruit trees within 10 square miles that are mature. So I hope that gives an insight to the diversity of food. It does. One thing you mentioned about roadkill, at least here in Pennsylvania, if you pick up roadkill, you're supposed to report it, especially if it's a game animal. Do you have any requirements like that where you live? You do with deer. We didn't call in on the coyote because there's like an open season on coyote all year round. Okay. So there's certain conditions. And also, just for listeners, we're very clear. We processed a lot of meat. We know that it's a fresh kill. You know, really, after 24 hours in the warmth, you don't want to be eating an animal. So you have to really know how to see the signs that it's a very fresh animal. Yes, we try to use a lot of wisdom when we're eating wild edibles and in roadkill and such. That also makes me think of the other legal issues. You mentioned living without police intervention and trying to have an alternative justice system. Do you have certain legal things in place for the Possibility Alliance and the land that you work on, things like liability insurance? If fifth graders or a college class are coming in, do you have any waivers that they sign or anything like that? We don't, um, and that's a a stance that we're taking. I went and lived in New Zealand. Uh, I was there for four months, and they didn't have a legal system. I was on a sailboat and I climbed up and looked down at the skipper who was going to bird sanctuaries and I was volunteering crew on it. And uh, 
I was going to jump off the mast, and I looked down and said, oh, and he said, you're not in the United States anymore. If you fall on your head, you can't sue me. Only the government can choose a case that's so extreme that there'd be compensation. And the freedom people have, this was in New Zealand in 96, and I imagine it's changed quite a bit. But we want to create a culture where, again, you're building on relationships again. And we do not want to move in the legalistic area where it's uh, fearful. Fear-based, and we've also had situations where a friend fell from a staircase in the barn, which is only eight feet tall. She happened to fall in the right place where she cracked her head, broke her back, and was in intensive care for three and a half weeks, and almost died. A helicopter came and life flighted her off the land, and so we, you know, from some interactions with parents said this amount would have been covered by homeowners. And so we rallied as a community and said, here's this amount. And we said, we will also raise whatever other amount you might need. Like instead of this relationship where I'm going to sue you if you don't help me, that in any condition, let's create a world where if someone, not even on my property down the road, gets into an accident, I'm going to support them. And we have handed checks of $1,000 for a Mennonite who didn't have health insurance so she could get uh, Lovenox because she was had a blood clot and she had a baby uh, in utero. And I want a world like that. Little La Plata, 1,200. Like the Midwest is ahead of the East and West Coast. We had a, a family here who the dad had a stroke in the 40s. They had two kids in high school and the insurance didn't cover it. And we had a fundraiser at night and in one night raised forty four thousand dollars with, you know, low middle class people in a town to pay their bills. That's the world I want to see. We're all coming together and people are crying and celebrating and just saying we are part of your family. And instead of giving four hundred dollars to some profit driven insurance company, what if everyone in a town of twelve hundred gave four hundred dollars a month to a fund for whoever needed it in that town? How much more empowering and how much more money there'd be for that person. So we're, you know, we're taking a risk because we're going upstream, but we're looking at a total reworking of how we deal in human relationships. And sometimes it's scary, but we're willing to lose this 110 acres, I'm willing to lose everything to try to create something that aligns with our heart. That's real freedom. I just think about that, that for so many of us who are seeking the ability to live our lives and to be free, that it's that lack of fear really provides an opportunity to to do that. Yeah, I mean, Gandhi said you had to develop fearlessness to practice upliftment of all life, and we have to deal with it every day and move through it. I don't have a nice, smooth segue to my next piece from that, but I only have one more question, and that's about children. Yeah. Do you homeschool your children on site? We're dealing with that design creatively right now. We've been blessed that a lot of friends from the East and West Coast have come out here and seen beautiful land, $1,500 an acre, with uh, oak and hickory forests and ponds. And they're like, well, I could buy in Oregon for 300000 or get 10 acres for 15000 So we've had a lot of families move around us, and we've started a cooperative. On Fridays, we have things like adventure days where the kids all come together and we I dress up as Dr. Fibian and we go looking at frogs in the pond and other things like that. And we just this fall are starting a cooperative school and it'll probably start with just around 10 kids 
but it's a beginning, and we want to move into a kind of outdoor, pulling from the Norwegian outdoor schools, some Waldorf, some nonviolence, and basically we're starting up a school in the area. We're putting out applications for teachers. With that said, we're looking at 20 hours a week because most of the kids, like my daughter, Edda, who's six, and my daughter, Ilas, who, who's 15 months, this morning at the morning meeting, they were at the grapevines picking grapes together for a half hour. Edda yesterday went out, two days ago, went out on the horses. She woke up and was like, what am I going to do today? Phoenix was taking the horses out with the wagon, and any six-year-old girl, it's a dream come true. She's on the wagon working the horses. So we find that school is so rich here that homeschooling isn't like just a nuclear family model. We have 15 adults on site and over 1,500 visitors from all over the world. So she's exposed to so much. She's uh, fluent in French at age six already, and we just let her kind of naturally choose when she's ready to take something on, combined with the wonderful socialization that happens in a school. So we're building this co-op, aiming at 20 hours a week in a kind of school setting. And the rest of the time, all these families are on homesteads where it's very rich. And the kids also, there's a Wednesday play group where they go to the lake and can just have free play together, and that's 10 to 20 kids. So we have a creative way of raising our kids both collectively. Uh, most of the families are within walking distance, so my daughter can go play with my friend's daughter, Ella. They're the same age. And they have Etta for the day, and then the next day I'll have Ella and Etta. And so it creates incredible abundance, too, as parents. We have a lot of open time. And Sarah's mom moved down the road and dad. So we have grandparents. My mom's moving here part-time. One of our other members' parents moving here from Chicago. So we're really building a multi-generational movement where everyone can enter. Sarah's parents, they're in the Plata. They have wood heat but they have electricity. They have an organic garden and 12 orchard trees, and they have rain catchment, but they also have internet and a hot shower. So they're moving at their pace, which is wonderful, and everyone's kind of moving towards this goal at all different locations. We can all hang out and enjoy the entry points. And so for our kids, we have, one big thing is family of all generations and friends where we're sharing the care of our kids and school settings where we're doing explicit learning, like I was Baroque Bob and we went out all day into the forest and identified trees and very hands-on learning. So that's kind of where we're at right now. And I think in a few years, we'll move to actually offering an amazing alternative school for everyone in the area. Another wonderful, inspiring conversation, Mr. Hughes. Thank you so much for this time and answering the questions, but also bringing in all the different elements of what makes the work you're doing functional. I really appreciate that and understanding the mindset and the perspective that goes with it. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to this conversation for the listeners? Yeah, just one, I feel really honored that people had a lot of questions and were interested in our last interview. I, I would like to just say that what's moving in your heart is real, that uh, sometimes people we connect with are very isolated in a city or somewhere else and feel really misunderstood but this yearning to actually have social and ecological justice, this yearning to have a world with no war, it's an authentic urging. As Martin Luther King says, the universe bends towards justice. Whatever your worldview, love, God, spirit, the wonderful aspects of creation, just to say, like, it's a real yearning. It's authentic. It's not crazy. And uh, if I can quote a superhero that Tick said, 
you're not going crazy. You're going sane in an insane world. And so, yeah, I'm just honored to be here and want to offer, too, that people can come here and visit and get a taste of it and start getting, as I call them, possibility cheerleaders. Find people, the few people in your life who are cheering you on to live an authentic life. And, yeah, it'd be wonderful to, through this medium, to make real human connections down the road, which I'm sure will happen. So, yeah, I'm just excited and hope maybe one of the listeners I'll meet face-to-face at some point, and that'd be a great gift. I would kind of like to do a permaculture road trip and make stopping to visit with you one of those points. Yeah, it's great. And um, just thanks again for it's always wonderful. I do have the experience, too, of sitting down with an old friend under a tree when I talk with you. So thanks for the heart that you bring into this process. And thank you for this time. There's an idea within storytelling from the Greek traditions of Kronos as the passage of time. But kairos are those moments of meaning that those memories that you have, those things that stick with you, the birth of a child or times like this, that first conversation that we had and the things that I remember from it and carry with me. And now to have another one with you. So thank you for this kairos in my own life. You're welcome. Have a wonderful day. It's been a really wonderful start to my morning. And that was Ethan Hughes. You'll find his phone number and address in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. After listening to this, share it with others. Get the word out about all the incredible possibilities, radical, practical, and necessary, that are open to us if we begin to truly embody what we believe in. Until the next time, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.